This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. The the spreading word from Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world, and here now is pressing towards the outermost parts of the world. The next section that we are opening up today is... uh, relating for us Paul's second missionary journey as we refer to it. And you remember how God has sovereignly led them, divinely led them to where they find themselves here. It all begins in the city of Philippi. Uh, And this is the account of how the gospel reached the European soil for the very first time there when they began to preach in the town of Philippi. Many of you will know that Philippi was a Roman colony. We studied the book of Philippians some time ago. There were many retired Roman soldiers there and Roman officials there. It was referred to as Little Rome. That's how much uh, they were connected to what was happening in Rome. That's how proud they were of their citizenship there. Uh, there were some five to 10,000 people somewhere around there living in Philippi at that time. And I mention this because it does become a, a component of the account here. And later when Paul will write to this beloved church, the church at, at Philippi, he reminds them, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. It's greater than the Roman citizenship. Uh, so that becomes part of the story here. That's why I want to tell you that and point that out. And what Luke does here is, for us is he records three portraits of the transforming grace of God. Three portraits of the transforming power of the grace of God. Two of them are very clearly conversion stories, for sure. I think the third one is also, but I'll have to tell you why when we get there. So I think here we have three portraits of transforming grace, three conversion stories. Now, there is a fourth story as well here, a fourth portrait, and that is a portrait of God's sustaining grace. In other words, that's looking at this whole account from the experience of Paul and Silas. But we'll leave that portrait for next week. We'll look at that all by itself. So today what we're looking at are those three portraits of God's transforming grace. And what these three portraits demonstrate is how God sovereignly orchestrates the mission and the salvation of individuals, right? Remember, Philippi is the place where God has divinely led them. He has brought them to the place where he planned to use them, and he planned to use them to reach these specific people, right? God is the Savior. God is the missionary God. And these three portraits also show us how the gospel of Jesus breaks through all barriers, all sorts of barriers, and unites people in, uh, from very different backgrounds in God's new family, that new covenant family of Jew and Gentile, of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so these three portraits involve, which you're going to see, very, three very different people. 
They come from, diff they're different ethnically, they are different economically, they're different situationally, they have different spiritual aptitudes. Yes, they're all lost, but they have three different sort of psychological, spiritual outlooks at the time that God reaches them, and His grace finds them in three very different sets of circumstances, right? Uh, the first one is found quietly at a riverside, Lydia. The second one is dramatically, powerfully uh, found by God's grace in a noisy city street, right? The slave girl. And the third one uh, is reached by the grace of God, the jailer in a crumbled prison. But they're all, they're all transformed. And they're all reached by the same Savior. One message, one Savior, the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, but beloved, this should encourage you tremendously. This whole chapter, this whole account here should encourage you tremendously as we think, as you think about people that are different. People you may care about, people you may love, people you've encountered, people from very dramatically different life situations which we're surrounded by here in the Bay Area. These may be people that you know at work, people you may know at campus, uh, you, you may know in your neighborhood. Listen, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. That's what Paul would later write to the Roman church in Romans 1.16. So let's, let's look at these three portraits. The first portrait is Lydia. And let's read her story beginning at verse 11. You remember how God has uh, providentially and dramatically led these men to Macedonia, lastly through that vision that they received. And so they went into Macedonia, which is the northern area of Greece today, is what we would call it now. And verse 11 says, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her whole household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and, and stay. And she prevailed upon us. We'll stop there. Uh, the ESV says that Lydia is a worshiper of the Lord. Some of your other translations will say she's a God-fearer. You might be more familiar with that. She's a God-fearer. We've met others before, like Cornelius in chapter 10, you remember. And what is a God-fearer from the Jewish perspective? A God-fearer is a Gentile, a non-Jew, who sympathizes with the Jewish faith now and prays to the Jewish God, prays to, to Israel's God, just like Cornelius. And this is where she was at. She was a religious person, though she was not altogether clear, right? And so she was near to the Jewish faith in that way. And evidently, there were not enough Jewish men in Philippi to establish a synagogue. 
The minimum was 10 Jewish men in order to establish a synagogue. Evidently, there was not enough, and Paul had been there long enough to understand that and learn that there was a place to pray where they gathered uh, outside the city uh, at this riverside prayer meeting. Now, Lydia, again, is therefore a... I want you to see her from different dimensions. Lydia is, on one hand, a religious person who still needs Christ, <laughs> okay? She is a, 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 a religious person, a spiritually-minded person, we might say. She would, in modern terms, we'd say she's seeking. Uh, we understand God's the ultimate seeker, right? But, but she's near. She's from Thyatira, which would make her from uh, what they referred to then as Asia. Uh, to us, this would be Western Asia or parts of Turkey, uh, she was, could have also even uh, maybe have been uh, Indian, and from our perspective today, she was a very wealthy person. She was wealthy. We know this because purple fabrics, and Chris, you're going to love this, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, purple fabrics were, were considered luxuries <laughs> in those days. They were very expensive. It was hard to make uh, fa uh, purple fabrics. They had different ways of doing that. And uh, Thyatira was a city that was well known for this product. And says that she was from there, yet she's in Philippi doing business. She was a successful businesswoman. Perhaps she had her shop in Thyatira and she had here a retail shop in Philippi. Her business must have been successful. She owned a home in Philippi. It was large enough to invite four men to come and stay with her, you see. So that's what we have here. And I want to point out something else by way of contrast. Contrast. She is not a Jewish woman. She's not a Jewish woman. She's not a homemaker. She was what? She was a financially successful businesswoman of influence. I, I say that for several reasons. One of the reasons is to point out that we'll be meeting several women like this from here on. In chapter 17, we're going to meet uh, the leading women of Thessalonica, leading women of Berea. We're going to meet Damaris in Athens. And in chapter 18, we're going to meet Priscilla in Corinth. And they all, all these women end up playing important roles in the establishing of churches and in the spreading of the gospel, partnering with the missionary team of Paul. And one of the side notes, the reasons I mention that is that there's many who say that the Bible degrades the place of women. I'm trying to make you understand that the Bible elevates the role of women, the place of women culturally, far beyond what would have ever been practiced in that century, period. You know, that Jesus startled people, startled them by simply speaking with women. And he gave them prominence in his interaction with them. They were the first to witness his resurrection and so forth. And Paul will even say in Galatians that in Christ Jesus, there's no male or female, right? And when he says that, he doesn't mean to, to eliminate gender distinctions at all, or not to, or, nor is he saying that there's absolutely no distinction in certain roles. What he's saying is that in Christ Jesus, in that place that matters most, our eternal relationship with God, there's absolute equality before God. We all need the grace of God, male, female. And what this also tells us, and I, I remind you as well as a congregation, that this means that everyone, male or female, has a place in the body of Christ. 
to serve Christ. And here's a woman whom God leads a team after many frustrations. He leads them to the city. He leads them to a little riverside because he plans to change this woman's life and then she's going to change theirs. She becomes a woman who financially supports the mission of Philippi, of, of the gospel. And then outward from Philippi into that region of Europe as we know it today. So how did it all happen? Well, it says here, Paul spoke. That's all he did. Can you do that? Because <laughs> that's all he did. <laughs> it says, Paul spoke, and Lydia, the ESV says, paid attention or listened carefully. What that verb means, it, it means to listen astutely and to agree, to, to heed, to respond. Which is why some translations say, and she responded to the things spoken of by Paul. So it's not just she heard him. Everyone there heard them. <laughs> but she responded. Why? Because God opened her heart. That's what happened. God touched this woman's heart, opened her heart. And Luke uses that very same verb to open. He uses that verb in chapter 24 of his gospel. Remember, uh, there in, in, in Luke 24, when he, uh, when he says that the Lord opened the eyes of the disciples to recognize Jesus. And then later in chapter 24, he opened their minds to understand what he was saying from the scriptures. And here it's he opened her heart to understand and receive and embrace the things being spoken of by Paul, right? This is a picture, beloved of how God saves people. How salvation comes to play in your personal experience as you hear someone speak the word of the gospel and it's the ministry of God and the scripture primarily it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's focused that way. He opens our eyes. He illumines our hearts. He changes our hearts. It's, it's described with different, with different metaphors. This is the illuminating and transforming work of the Holy Spirit who causes the good news of Jesus to all of a sudden make sense. <laughs> to be clear and make sense and then it sinks in and you respond. Your eyes are opened. Uh, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And Paul says that in Romans 10, and then that very same chapter, he's, he points out that the heart, the heart, and I'm not talking about the physical organ, but the heart is the spiritual organ where this transformation takes place. He says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, you see. And so that capacity to suddenly believe that Jesus of Nazareth was truly a historic individual who died for your sin and then was raised from the dead, that capacity to do that is the work of God. He opened her heart to comprehend and respond to what Paul was saying. Paul would later also write to the church at Corinth, which we're going to meet in chapter 18, and he says the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's the capacity, the power that comes and frees us from the blindness or the hardness of heart, that stony ground that we've been singing about. This is all the work of God. Listen, today, wherever you are, Children, if you're here, young people, if you're here, 
or you watching at home, if you don't yet believe, this is what you need. You need God to open your heart. And so you look to him. There's nowhere else to go. Where else shall we go, Lord? Where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So you ask him, open my heart. Help me, Lord. You speak to him. And so Paul spoke. There's no doubt we know where he, what he spoke from. Where, he, where did he speak from? He spoke from the Old Testament. That was the scripture. What did he speak about? Hey, God's the creator and man has fallen into sin. God has made promise to redeem. He made a promise to Abraham. He added promises to David and so forth. It was to be a Messiah to come. He would suffer. Jesus is that Messiah because he suffered, was buried, was raised the third day. Just like the scriptures say. And, and, and I am proclaiming to you Lydia and you women, I'm proclaiming to you that there is forgiveness of all sins through repentance and faith in him. And God opened her eyes right there. Open her heart. That is the work of grace. What did he do? He spoke. That's all we have to do <laughs> is speak. Is speak the gospel. Let this free you. She was not saved because Paul was such a great orator. The only reason she came to faith, ultimately, is because he spoke about Jesus and God did this wonderful work in her heart. So let this free you from feeling a weight that you're not designed to bear, that maybe I didn't, you know, maybe I didn't turn the phrase well enough when I should have, mm, I should have should have come at it this way or didn't give enough evidences of this or that. It's Tell them about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, and let God do what he does and what he alone can do, which is convert, open eyes. Yeah. And so she hears, by the grace of God, she's saved. This dramatic change is clear because it says after she was baptized and her household as well, and I'll get back to that later when I talk about the jailer, but she immediately takes on the outward sign of the new covenant in baptism. And her household, there's no mention of a husband. You, normally there would be in a woman in her position in this situation. Her household is probably more a reference to servants, people who even worked for her, perhaps. Her household as well. She urged us, saying, if you've judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Uh, what we see here is just the immediate fruit of, of conversion in this woman wanting to provide hospitality to strangers. Hospitality was a big thing in the culture then. We've talked about it before. This is exactly what happened to Cornelius. After the Lord opened his heart, he said, stay here, guys. Let me feed you. Let me take care of you, and so forth. And so this is what happens. This is the beginning of the meeting of the church of Philippi. And by the time we come to the end of this chapter in verse 40, it says that Paul returned to Lydia's place and the, to greet the brethren there. By then, there was a small church already. In other words, more people than just Lydia, you see, were gathering already at her house, right? And, it all, and she becomes this key supporter of the church of Philippi. That was a generous church, and I believe probably she was a, she's one who had a great influence on their generosity and how they supported Paul and the mission of the gospel. Remember, later Paul will write to this church when he's in prison again. This time he's in prison in Rome and he says to them in Philippians chapter 4, I'm reading there in verse 15, he says, You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning 
of the gospel. What's he mean? When it first came to Europe and to Macedonia, when I left Macedonia, what's he talking about? He's talking about where we're going in the next chapters here. When I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, he says, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Even there at the end when he was in the prison in Rome, they were still supporting him in his mission. And I have no doubt in my mind that Lydia was a, one of those great supporters and that God brought her into the kingdom of God in part to do that very thing. We don't all get to go like Paul. We don't all get to go and take the gospel, but we can all be like Lydia and be supportive of extending the mission of the gospel. And it all began where? At a prayer meeting by a little stream somewhere. A group of ladies together, and Paul walks up, and he speaks about Jesus. He shares with them. Quiet riverside. No drama, no platform, no electric instruments, <laughs> no lights, <laughs> no smoke. <laughs> a riverside, a man speaking about Jesus and the Spirit of God. Be encouraged. The first Lydia in my life, my wife Sherry. The Lord had prepared her. She wasn't my wife then, but, but he had prepared her Poor gal, for a whole lot he prepared <laughs> But she was my first Lydia. I went, when I got converted, it was within a couple months, and, and through, through my acting strangely, now that I'm in Christ, uh, she knew something was coming, and I came to talk to her, and the Lord had prepared, and it was just meeting in a small room, and I'm just telling her, Jesus is the Son of God. She got on her knees and prayed, and that was it. So she was my Lydia. Other, there may be Lydias in your life. May God prepare Lydia for you, I hope. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's a neighbor. And maybe, maybe it's someone you just have yet to not, what? Speak. And they're just waiting. The second portrait, the second portrait, couldn't be more different. <laughs> and this is why I think Luke records these three. In other words, I think verse 30. 40 tells us there were more conversions in Philippi, but he selects these three on one level to show us just the power of his transforming grace and reaching all kinds of different people. A lot more drama involved here. Yes, lights, action, camera. <laughs> Verse 16, we were going to the place of prayer. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling and she followed Paul and us crying out these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation the idea here is that she was kept doing that repeatedly and this she kept doing for many days wow Paul having become greatly annoyed don't uh, don't you love that the Bible's honest <laughs> I underlined that that, that, that that verse right there I said, right on, Paul. <laughs> Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owner saw that her hope 
that their hope of gain was gone, financial gain, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. That's an important detail. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. We'll talk next week a little more about what all that would entail and how bad that would have been. We'll get there next week. But I want to hear just talk about the girl. Uh, she is... A young, most likely a teenager, tormented girl who is nothing like the successful businesswoman from Thyatira. She's not free on any level. She is under a double bondage. She's under a spiritual bondage, not only of spiritual blindness like all of us before Christ, but demonic possession. She is dominated by the darkness. And she's under also under bondage to these men who own her as a piece of, of uh, profit-making equipment. This is a totally different picture. Uh, today, what would she be? She'd be something like a, a prostitute who's just trapped in the sex trade and, and uh, living in the darkness and addicted to drugs, which they make sure that she... Uh, looks to them to get and so forth. This is a whole different kind of person here, right? Difference between her and Lydia is very dramatic. Stark. And you're, d you're supposed to pick up on that, okay? Okay. <laughs> Literally, the text reads that she has a python spirit. And the reason I say this because a lot of you have study Bibles and then you come up afterwards and say, why does it say python spirit? <laughs> what, what it is is this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. It's that that a python had a, was associated with Greek mythology. And down through time, without explaining all that, it came to refer to a spirit of divination, of fortune-telling, future-telling, you see. And so they said, she, oh, she has this spirit of the python. That's what they meant, you know. Again, we would call it today fortune-telling, you know. And there's only one kind of fortune-teller, which is what? The false kind, <laughs> It's only one kind. But they come in two different flavors. <laughs> the two different flavors are this. I know that what I'm telling you is a big lie. And then there's the other flavor, which is something's happening to me. She's channeling. There's something demonic going in this person's mind and life. Okay? And that's how Luke would understand it because that's how he tells it. That's how he recounts it, you see. And so... This demonically inspired fortune telling was bringing great profit to these guys. Because I'm sure it looked a lot more dramatic than the other types of fortune telling. <laughs> Who knows what she looked like and sounded like and what her voice, you know, when she gave these oracles about your future and so forth. And, and so this was religion for profit because this was considered a religious activity in their context. 
And the counter begins with her following the team all of a sudden when they're on their way to, the, to pray one of the, one of the Sabbaths. And, and there's this girl following them all of a sudden. And, and, and she begins to say this over and over. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And one, immediately you think, well, how did she know this? Well, remember when Jesus came into the scene, uh, the demons would say, what do, you, what do we have to do with you, Son of God? You know? In other words, they had a capacity to recognize to some degree, Jesus' identity. And the same thing's happening here. And, and Luke wants us to understand the ministry of Jesus is continuing through the apostles. The same kind of power encounters with darkness is taking place. And so this woman is saying these things, and there's some degree of recognition. And on one level, when you first read it, you say, well, why didn't Paul just let it keep going? This, what's wrong with a little local promotion, you know? You know, if everyone thinks she's a fortune teller, and then she's saying, these men are servants of the most high God here to tell you the way of salvation. That's good advertisement, man. Why would he become un- greatly annoyed? You know what that verb means in the Greek? Annoyed. <laughs> That's what it means. Uh, you could translate it irked. <laughs> uh, he was greatly irked by this. Why would he bothered, be bothered with this? Because what she was saying would not be understood by them the way you maybe immediately would have understood it. When, they said, when she said, Most High God, they didn't think, Oh, the God of Israel, creator of heaven and earth, the Father who sent the Son. Most High God in their context primarily referred to Zeus or to some other God which was high on their chart, you know. The Most High God would not be a reference to our understanding of God. When she says that they are servants of this God, who would they have been thinking of? We don't know. And then when, when it says, the, they're declaring to you the way of salvation, there's actually no, no article there. It's, she said, they're declaring to you a way of salvation. Not the. A way, a way, this way, that way. And salvation from what? They wouldn't immediately thought salvation from the condemnation we face as a result of having offended the Creator. Their thing is salvation from a bad harvest. We offended the God of harvests. Salvation from a, a bad business deal. We offended the God of business deals, you know. So, th- so this was what? This was a muddling of the message, you see. This is demonic attempts to, let's, mer- let's merge Jesus amongst all the rest of them, you know. He's just a way among many ways. Uh, let's muddle it. That's like today, right? It's great you believe in Jesus, but there are many roads to God. But Jesus says, no, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So, so Paul's done with it. He, gets, he, he just gets to a point where he's annoyed at what she's been doing. He, does, he won't tolerate any longer. And he, he exercises this demon. So then the other flip side would be, okay, so if he knew this was muddling the message, then why wait so long? Why let this go on for days and days? Well, one of the reasons is, I think, we're not told directly what the reason is here. But I think the reason is that there was a growing anti-Jewish sentiment in the empire. And this was a Roman colony. And there weren't many Jews, not enough Jewish men to even have a synagogue. Look what he says in 18, verse 2. When he comes to Athens, 
When he comes to Athens, uh, Luke says he found a Jew named Achilla, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Why did they come there? Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. That's why. Uh, the Stoic philosopher Seneca had, had influenced Claudius, and Claudius said, enough with the Jews out of Rome, and here is a Roman colony. Here is a little Rome. So I think I'm reading between the lines. I think Paul doesn't want to come into little Rome, and on the first day he's there, be those Jews that are causing trouble, just like Claudius said, you know? Let's keep a low profile, Silas. Let her do her thing. Let's just keep doing what we came to do, but finally it was too much for him. And so he said, all right. And he did what he did. I think that's probably what was happening here. And so Paul addresses the Spirit. He doesn't command the Spirit in his own power or authority. He commands it just like the Scripture records the apostles did when, or the disciples did when Jesus sent them. That is, in his name, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he commands the Spirit to come out of her and immediately we're told that very hour it left her. That must have been, that must have been a massive, huge relief and transformation. This bondage that this girl had experienced for who knows, God knows how long, was just suddenly, suddenly lifted. Suddenly lifted. And she was dramatically changed in a moment. And it made clear that Python spirit or whatever you call it, whatever you all think, is nothing compared to Jesus of Nazareth. The Son of God, the name of Christ, has authority over the spirit world, the demonic. That became clear. Well, right here at this point, we wonder what happened to her because Luke does not narrate it. In my own mind, it's not hard to believe or to think that she became a believer that the grace that liberated her from this bondage was also the grace that would work to open her heart, not just free her from this bondage. I imagine she was probably a lot like the Gadarene, the demoniac, who you remember when he was liberated and Jesus sent those demons into the, into the pigs that were need, nearby. What did he do? He sat at the feet of Jesus, we're told, in his right mind. Imagine that. For the first time in who knows how long, he, he, sat, he sat at the feet of Jesus in his right mind. Everything was clear. And it says in the gospel accounts, he begged Jesus to let him follow. And when Jesus said, it's not time, you know, he, he went around telling everyone, we're told there, the great things Jesus had done for him. It's not hard to imagine that this teenage girl would have done the same thing. That she would have just been overwhelmed by the grace, power, the mercy, the love of God that someone really has the authority to transform her like that. And she was set free. So these first two portraits, Lydia and the slave girl, they're very different. They're both women, but they're very different. The first is this woman of financial means, a religious person, we would call her a seeker. She is successful. Her ethnicity is probably you know, West Asian from their perspective, Turkish from our perspective today, Middle Eastern probably we would say, or maybe even Indian. 
And here's this slave girl. She's a teenager. She's in bondage. She's not free. She's probably Greek in her, in her ethnicity. She's tormented. She is tormented and enslaved, taken over by this alien demonic influence, abused by evil men. There are still people in this condition as well. There are still people in this condition as well who are trapped by other people, who are slaves to others, and not only just the sex trafficking industry that we have, but the drug culture. Uh, but there's all sorts of webs, the webs of darkness that seek to entrap people, use them for their own gain. And, and then there's also the spirit world. In other words, to say, we dismiss, we dismiss to our own peril what the Bible affirms, that there is such a thing as demonic presence in this world. Yes, it's heightened when Jesus came and the kingdom of God was clashing, and we don't, we're not as accustomed to these sorts of encounters, but I assure you, and I tell you, you dismiss it to your own, your, your own detriment if you think that just that's not real. Not frequent in my life, I have encountered things that were clearly visibly demonic. It was only twice in my life, my ministry life. But I have no doubt it's real. And there's places, of course, where it's more, much more pre prevalent and, and prominent in its, in its visibility. But God's grace has liberating power and the power to transform people who are entrapped, not just by their spiritual deadness, but by oppression by control, by influence, the influence of darkness. The gospel is for the seeker. Religious people need it. And the gospel is also for those in bondage, those who are not free, those who live under the control of other influences. And then lastly, we come to the jailer. Very Another very different, very different portrait. First of all, we got a man here. Yes, God can save grown men. <laughs> but, you know, some of you latest need to hear this testimony. <laughs> yes, God can save grown men. So let's, let's follow this account of, of the jailer. Um, we've, we've heard already, you know, what happened to Paul and Silas, how they were arrested and the jailer was ordered to keep them safely there at verse 23, and he received the order. He put them into the inner prison, probably a basement below, and fastened their feet in the stocks. We'll talk more about that next week. What happened? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Remember, not many Jews in this town. They're probably thinking, what are these wackos doing? But they're listening, and suddenly, suddenly, we're to, we're to pick up the connection between them singing praises, and suddenly there is a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. It didn't crumble enough to crush everybody. It just shook enough to rattle all these things loose, right? And when the jailer woke, he's probably... He, he, the, Often jailers lived above in the same structure, but they, the, the prison would be in the basement level. 
And so he probably lived above. When the, when, the, when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. A short sword, he was ready to, you know, fall on his own sword, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. There might be two reasons for that. One reason would be if he was a retired Roman soldier, uh, there's conflict here because they said, well, a Roman soldier would not be exposed to uh, what would happen to others. What would happen to others is if a prisoner escaped from you, you would get what the prisoner was supposed to get. That didn't happen common to the Roman soldiers, but it does happen. So it could have been that he thought, I'm done. I'm, a, I'm not going to be tortured. I'm just going to take my life in a minute here. Or it could be he wasn't a Roman soldier and he knew that was going to be his fate for sure, right? Was he, was, he was going to... Uh, have to die. It could have been strictly honor. He could have been a Roman soldier. The third possibility was a retired Roman soldier who knew he wasn't necessarily destined for that. Might be, but he was honorable. He failed, so he was going to fall on his sword. There's such kind of honor in military men. So we're not told why, but he was ready to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a, a loud voice, do not arm yourself. We were all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Wow. What a scene. Very different, right, from the other two. They're all, they, they all have different circumstances. And here's a man, he's different. It's a dramatic conversion. Luke does not refer to the earthquake as a miracle. But it's the way it's connected to everything that's here and how it, it didn't crumble the, the, the whole place, but it, it, it loosened their shackles. And when it happened, right as they were finishing singing, and it's, it's, it's what someone has called a cluster of improbabilities. <laughs> that all these things would happen the way they happened when they happened, you see. And there's no doubt that the jailer, no doubt that the jailer knew why they were in jail. Why? Because I told you he was told why they were. He knew exactly what had happened. He probably had already even heard the whole story. You know, this has gone on for days. The, the, the well-known fortune teller kept saying about these guys that they're servants of the Most High God. They're here to tell you about the way of salvation. I imagine he's heard about that throughout the week or weeks, or if not, then when he was he's told to imprison them, and then he heard the, the rumor of her being somehow exercised, free from the python spirit or what have you. And in my mind, there's... He most likely even heard about the singing. And then all of a sudden, then the place shakes, and this thing happens in dramatic fashion. And then the last thing touches him. The last thing that touches him is this, that these men whom he had whipped and whom he put in stocks and whom he could care less about showed love for him when Paul said, don't take your life. 
we're all here. Where does this come from? Here is this strong, disinterested, most likely retired Roman soldier, a man, a secular man. He's not seeking. He's not seeking. He's not dominated by others. The system works pretty good for him. He's got a steady job in Philippi, a Roman colony. And here he is, this hard man. We know people like that, right? Just hard, disinterested men who are suddenly touched by what? A threat, life-threatening experience coupled with unimaginable love. A life-threatening experience coupled by an unimaginable, unexpected expression of love. The love of God that came through Paul's concern for him. Imagine he thought, what would I have done? I would have let the guy fall on his sword and then sneak out, you know? He stopped me. This stuff was probably swimming in his head, right? He was, his life was what? Jolted and then flooded with love. I know people like this. I'm one of them. This made me think immediately about my auto accident. Um, when I was living as a disinterested young American male, <laughs> not a seeker, no interest in anything like that, just a troublemaking 19, 20-year-old. And I get in that auto accident where, with Sherry in the car with me, and we go end over end a couple times and roll three times, and, and I am just, again, no one's going to call it a miracle, but I would say it was a cluster of impossibilities, <laughs> improbabilities, where as we're spinning in the accident, Sherry grabs my head and pulls me down right as the car swings into a rock out, cro- that was cropping out of the side of the hill, smashes my side of the car, the driver's side, and my life is spared. And what happened? My life was shook like the jailer's. And then I read through the New Testament and the Gospel of John three times and my, my heart was flooded with love. The love of God. My life was shook and the first things that I thought about when I was, on, when I was is, sitting in the uh, passenger seat of the tow truck <laughs> and he's pulling this crumbled car away. I'm driving, I'm quiet and he's just sitting there. Young man, you ought to be dead. And he just came, skips, he just he just kept saying stuff like that, and I'm just sitting there thinking, man, I ought to be dead. And the things that entered my mind were, life is frail, you're a jerk, hell is real, what would you have done if you died? And that was it. I went home and pulled that Bible out that my friend gave me, and I didn't stop reading for three months until I saw the love of God. This is another picture yet again of a, the power of God's transforming grace. Different ways he reaches different people, you know. What must I do to be saved, he says. Now, he probably didn't even understand all he was saying in this sense. He's not thinking, again, in the Christian sense per se. He's putting together all these things that are happening. But I do note that he doesn't, that it's, he uses the passive form of the verb Luke does here. In other words, he doesn't say, what do I do to save myself? No, no, salvation has to come from someone outside him because he can't believe what just happened. There is some kind of 
power with you, whoever you guys are, some God. What must I do, in other words, for your God to save me, to be saved? And Paul answers very clearly, very directly, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's it. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And did he say more? Yeah, he went to his household and he spoke to him the word of the Lord, meaning he expanded what it means uh, about Jesus, who he is, what he did, and how he rose from the dead, etc. But right there, he was just very direct and very clear. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll, see, you'll be saved. He doesn't say, here's a list of things you got to change before you get saved. <laughs> I'd like you to clean all this up right here. First thing you got to do is change the prison system. These guys need better food. What's he say? Believe. That's what Paul says. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteous. And, and from there, forever, salvation has always been the same. People are saved How? by grace, through faith in the promises of God regarding the Messiah. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What is it to believe? Yes, there's, you know, there's, there's some discussion about that, right? And people debate that. I understand that. Belief is more than understanding. You need to understand who you're believing in, yeah? But, and, and it's more than assent, yeah? You need to agree that he is who he is, but belief primarily in, in, in the scriptures is, is more than that. It's what? It's trust. It's putting your whole weight upon him, you see. It's, it's entrust yourself to him. Trust him to be who he is. And what is it to trust? Spurgeon used to love illustrating in all kinds of dramatic ways. I, I always remember the one he used of a, of a, of a ship, or like a big sail ship. And he'd say, imagine a man, he's on, the, he's on the top of the mast and the ship is in a storm. And they've brought down everything. He's just holding on up there. The sails are down. And he's holding onto the top of that mast. And the wind is blowing and the rain is falling. And there's people below saying, let go, trust us, and you'll be saved. <laughs> and Spurgeon would say, unless he, unless he just trusts them and lets himself go, he won't be saved. But when you trust these men to catch you, when you trust Christ to be the Savior, the only way to be reconciled to God, have all your sins forgiven, you're saved because you have now Put all your hope in what he has done and not what you've lacked to do. So the gospel is good news because the gospel doesn't say, here's the things you've got to change in your life. The gospel says, believe in Jesus and he'll change your life. <laughs> and that's what's happened to every one of you who's a Christian. He's come into your life through faith. Very different, right? So at last, we got a blue-collar guy <laughs> a blue collar guy hardened man someone whose worldview was shaped and dominated by the military most likely at least by the Roman understanding of a system of justice here was a man who was familiar with inflicting physical pain upon other people with a cruel indifference their problem not mine and suddenly the grace of God just enters his life first of all he is shook up 
And then he's overwhelmed by love. And he comes to faith. Hallelujah. God's, God's amazing. This whole chapter has reminded me, not only of my own salvation, but just how there's just no one outside the reach of his grace. So easy to give up on people sometimes, huh? Maybe it's just the amount of years you know them and, and you think, man, their heart is just never, ever going to soften up. It takes but a second if he does the work. Or you know people entrapped, just so dark, they're just, they're just dominated by, what be it, by, uh, by drugs, by pornography, or whatever combination. And you think, what can snap that? Grace. The grace of God. And he also demonstrates his own reality of conversion by also showing hospitality immediately. Look back down there, it says, they spoke the word of the Lord to him, verse 32, and to all who were in his house. And, and at this point, I just want to point out that all who were in his house, I know sometimes this text is used to, 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 to support infant baptism, and I know some of you come from that background, but it, it doesn't say that any of them were infants, and it does say he spoke the word to all of them, so they had to be old enough to understand what he's saying. He spoke to the whole family. He spoke long enough to explain the gospel, and they believed, so they were all baptized, you see, which is always the, account, the case in the book of Acts. But then what did he do? He brought them into his house, set food before them, and he rejoiced along with an entire household that they had believed in God. Amazing. It was against the law for a, uh, a jailer to do that. You, do, you could not bring prisoners into your home. Uh, the, pr- the prisons were not responsible for feeding the prisoners their families were. His life was threatened by doing what he did, and nevertheless, he did it. Such is the transforming power of God's grace. Three very different people. Be encouraged, beloved. Be encouraged. God's grace comes through the gospel, and the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Let's pray.